Welcome to this week's edition of the ASF Scots in Us podcast, Jacobite Spotlight. I am Camilla Hellman, President of the American Scottish Foundation. And on this episode, we turn to the Jacobite period in Scottish history. We begin by speaking with Jamie, the 21st Lord Semple, member of the Standing Council of Scottish Chiefs, an avid Scottish historian, who undertakes bespoke tours through his company, Clan Chief Tours. He will take us back to those turbulent times, speaking to the background of that time and outline some key places to visit. And then we will be joined by Charles Graham Campbell, Managing Director of Bonham Scotland. Upcoming is Bonham's annual Scottish sale and Charles Graham Campbell will discuss with us some key items coming up including flintlock pistols and swords from the Jacobite period to a sparring of the Gordon Highlanders regiment that through its emblems tells such a story. And then we have a fascinating visit with Paul MacDonald of the MacDonald Armouries and Academy of Arms, sword maker and master at arms. Maestro Paul MacDonald has been making high quality reproductions of edged weaponry for historical fences. And now, please join me in conversation with Jamie, the 21st Lord Semple, who takes us back to Scotland in Jacobite times. Good morning, Jamie. You're joining us, I believe, from London today. So you've you've travelled south from your normal home up in Scotland. Absolutely. And... uh... (laughs) It was a pretty horrific trip, believe it or not. But uh, anyway, here we are and the sun is shining. Good. So this week, the Scots in Us podcast is looking at the Jacobites. And we're talking to Bonhams who have some wonderful Jacobite um, items coming up in their upcoming sale. And also to somebody who's going to talk to us about armor and and all, all of that side of things. But we wanted to talk to you today because you have a great love of history. And you also um, undertake tours through clan chief tours, they're bespoke tours. So if I was to say to you, I would like to understand through your clan chief tours, I'm coming to Scotland and I would like to understand this period better and visit some of the main places that would, would give me a greater understanding. How would you put that together? I realized that I'm going up to the Highlands. I'd be visiting probably some of the castles and some of maybe the battlefield, but how would you put this together? Because there's quite a lot that happened in this period. Well, I think the starting point is it, it all ends in 1745, in fact, 1746 on the battlefield of Culloden. That, that's when the final Jacobite dream yeah. dies. What I did is I gave you a picture of what had happened when we get up to 1707. The intervening years between 1707 and 1745 see basically three uprisings. And we have an uprising in 1715, we have another uprising in 1719, and then finally you have the big uprising known as the 45 Rebellion. So over what actually, if we go back into the late 1690s, over a 60-year period, the Jacobites are a thorn in the side 
of the governance of the United Kingdom. Fortune, say fortunately from a, a Tor perspective, it, these various rebellions happen in different parts of the country. And there are, so in terms of looking uh, at the, look, sorry, visiting Scotland and, and what I would call undertaking a Jacobite trail, you do get to visit some really lovely parts of the country. And um, each one of them has got what I would call a site where a major event happened in one of those uprisings. And so what I would first of all do is that in, in obviously knowing the country reasonably well, it would take a minimum of three days. So if you were just going to fly in, uh, my advice would be certainly hire a car and you're looking for three top end four days in order to cover the major sites. But obviously there are aspects of some of these sites, you know, I mean, that there's just the straight tourism. Why don't we go for a long walk, for instance? Why, you know, why don't we go and visit? There are some quite famous properties that had absolutely nothing to do with any of the, of, of the events that took place during these uprisings. But there are some key landmarks, some key battlefields, some um, key areas which are worth visiting if one really wants to what I would get, get a real feel for the Scotland that in a way that Bonnie Prince Charlie, who's obviously by far and away the most well-known name in, amongst all of these rebellions, uh, the sort of the Scotland that he, he, he basically arrived at and subsequently ran his campaign. And where would you start? If, I know that you've done with us sort of the one day in Edinburgh and then you've traveled north and you've done the highlands and the castles and the battlefields up in the Inverness area. But how would you sort of divide this up? I think it would be worth, as I said, if there is a slight fortunate, what I would call geographical aspect to it, is that if we take, I think probably, um, it's probably worth going to the first major uprising, which was in the late 1690s. And that ends up with, um, it's, it's slightly indecisive to be, you know, from, from a historical perspective. But what we actually see is the famous battle of Killiecrankie. Now Killiecrankie is, is north of Perth. Um, and that whole Perthshire area is one of stunning part of Scotland. And so I would spend the best part of a day in that area looking at Killiecrankie, going to um, Dunkeld, which was a, a battle that, that came after Killiecrankie. And um, that would be very much a, what I would call one of the legs, sort of the Perthshire leg, telling the story of the famous Bonnie Dundee who died at Killiecrankie. It's, it's a dramatic sight and it really is, it, it's where, I, I suppose in a way it's where the Highland Charge, which became sort of famous for, you know, in, in, in terms of regimental history, was first really experienced at first hand by the government troops who were on the receiving end of it. So there's quite a big story to tell about that uprising. And then 
that that also includes one of the reasons that it all happened there was because Blair Castle was was uh, was one of the key reasons that it happened in area and, and that is a fairly magnificent property to look at so that's one leg another leg that I would look at would be um, the 1715 uprising and that happens really begins in Aberdeenshire right up in the north very close to Braemar where the then Earl of Mar raises his standard and he marches south. And um, it, that rebellion also peters out, or sorry, I say, and has a, what I would call a, it's slightly indecisive in the end, but the Jacobites basically um, don't press hard enough. And you find a situation where James himself, the actual, actually has landed in Scotland, um, not Bonnie Prince Charlie, but his father. And um, it, uh, so you, it had all what I would call the right ingredients, but uh, it, was a, it was sort of slightly, I said, I have to excuse here, Camilla. It's, it, was a, it was a damp squib would be the best way of putting it. Um, there was a lot of hope, a lot of aspiration, a lot of clans actually were approached um, but it, it failed. And then we've got this really quite lengthy period from 1715 to 1745 with one really interesting period, uh, event that happened four years after 1715. 1719, the Spaniards get involved and the Spanish support the Jacobite cause which up until then had been very much underwritten by the French. And the reason the French weren't involved in it because they were now at peace with England or at peace with Britain. The, the Spanish get involved in it and here we've got, it's, it really all happens around Ellen Donan Castle. And Ellen, Ellen Donan Castle is one of those extraordinary must go to see castles. Um, you know, it's on biscuit tins, it's on literature. Um, it's photographed. It it's photographed yeah, one there is. <laughs> yeah, and um, it, uh, it's the home of the McCrae's. It was actually restored uh, in the early 1900s. And it had been a ruin since 1719. Because what had happened is that the Spaniards had landed um, by Ellen Dornan. They had had the support, obviously, of the local clans. They made it their base. That's where they offloaded all the ammunition, specifically lots of gunpowder. And there were 300 troops. Various uh, Scottish clans uh, came from the Western Highlands, notably the Camerons. And they then got together and off they, off they marched. But the government forces had already been made very well aware of this and they were also marching towards them and they all ends up at a battle called the Battle of Glenshiel. And Glenshiel is about eight miles, maybe nine miles south of Ellendonan. And in fact, what actually happens is as the conflict is about to happen on land, the Navy arrive, as in the British Navy arrive, and they bombard um, Ellendonan. The garrison subsequently surrender. 
and the net result is they blow the whole thing up and the Spanish that are left at Glen Shiel realize there is no, no option, but they have no option but to, but to surrender and they do surrender. And that again, that's a sort of a, one, a flash in the pan. Very few people know about it, but there is a nice uh, memorial in, in Glen Shiel. It's a lovely part of the country. And then, as I said earlier, as you, you know, might as well go and see Ellen Donan now, it's been fully restored. And that um, neatly sort of ties in to the main event, which was in 1745. It's just ironic geographically that when Bonnie Prince Charlie and his, the seven, his seven supporters landed, they landed not that far north of, of um, Ellen Donan. And therefore, it's all what I would call geographically, it's all quite close. And once you get to the, the 45 landing, then you've got the Glenfinnan Monument, which is really where the standard was raised. Um, the Jacobite army under Bonnie Prince Charlie and various others marches down to Edinburgh pretty well unopposed. And then they're based in Edinburgh for a while. And they actually are based in Holyrood palace. Um, and I, I say that because the irony of all of this is that they don't take Edinburgh Castle, uh, which is held by the government, but he does hold court and has all of his supporters down in Holyrood. And shortly after he gets to Holyrood, they have their first fight decisive victory at Preston Pans, which is about seven miles south of Edinburgh. And it is a very decisive battle. The government are seriously shocked by what's actually happened. And the Jacobites for the first time really realize that they have actually made a major leap forward. And at that stage, there's a lot of internal debate about should, should they stay in Scotland? Should James just declare on the, the, the Scottish crown on behalf of his father? Um, but no, sorry, Bonnie Prince Charlie is determined to go to London, that's where the big prize is. And I think we know what then happens. They, they get as far as Derby. They don't get the support from the English Jacobites that they were led to believe would be, was in specifically in Manchester. And the net result is they have to turn around and they come back. And against all the odds, they win another major battle at Falkirk. And that battlefield is still there. And there's another memorial there. Um, and that's and a wonderful area to visit. There's so much to see there in yes, there's, there, there's it's, a wonderful point to go to. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, from a, from a tour guide perspective, you know, the country is content rich, you know, yes. e even if you're not what I would call an avid historian and a sort of desire to see everything that the, the Jacobites got involved in. There are so many other beautiful properties and landscapes and things to do that pretty much wherever the Jacobite army trod or wherever they, you know, the, the story leads us, um, the geography definitely uh, takes a lot of beating. The scenery is awesome. And uh, so they, they do Falkirk. Um, they are pretty well aware at that stage that it's a bit of a, you know, they, they've done well to, to do what they've done, but the, the Highlanders now are absolutely exhausted. I mean, you know, it's a massive distance to walk. Um, you know, there are, I mean, I'd hate to think what these men went through and they got that far. And then eventually the decision was let's retreat to the Highlands 
let's regroup, let's rethink. And I'm afraid to say there was disagreements between Bonnie Prince Charlie and his leadership. And instead of dispersing and disappearing into the highlands, you know, to lick your wounds and wait for more reinforcements, whether it's money or guns or whatever, they, uh, they decide to make a stand at Culloden and well, you only have to visit Culloden to understand, you know, the, uh, the end story. And I think once you've done that, the only thing I would say is that there was an aftermath to Culloden, um, which was pretty brutal, you know, where the government of the day actually attempted to sta stamp out what we would describe as Gallic culture which is everything from the use of the language, the wearing of the Highland dress, the playing of bagpipes. And it did have a profound effect on the Highlands. And when you drive around parts of the Western Highlands, the first thing you notice is there are very few people there. There weren't that many in originally, but a lot of them found themselves with no option but to either emigrate, which is why so many of them are in the United States, or to move south to places like Glasgow, where there were new opportunities, the Industrial Revolution was beginning. And it, it was, you know, the whole Jacobite story, um, the, the, the final chapter is, it, it is really quite tragic in terms of the impact it had on, on the Gallic culture and the Gallic speaking people. I think that the um, revitalized, the restoration and um, of Inverness Castle and the whole revitalization of that area is going to make it a wonderful, a, a, a great enriched experience for the visitor. Um, because everything is fairly close by and they can really then understand it more. And they're doing a lot around the oral histories and everything, aren't they, up there at Inverness? Yes, I mean, it's. We, for instance, that there are many Americans who seek to get a far better understanding of their origins. And uh, one of the great resource centers is in Inverness. Um, and many of them go there to do just that, you know, to sort of go through the archives, get assistance, which is supplied by the center into tracing their, their origins. Um, Inverness itself has undergone quite a quite a big transformation. It, it has had, I think, a fairly substantial sum of money invested in it. It is very much the capital of the Highlands. Um, and, um, you know, we've got, I mean, no, no greater example than you take the Isle of Skye, which, you know, they built a bridge, uh, a fairly impressive bridge, but probably less said about that, the better. But what the bridge did is it opened up tourism into Skye. Um, and whilst the sky itself is, is I think, ge geographically and scenery is stunning, um, I, I feel that it, the uh, infrastructure is, is creaking under the groan of the volume of people visiting it. But it is part of the Jacobite story, and I'm sure there'll be many who will want to take in sky. A lot of this really can be my advice to those is, you know, try and avoid the peak season. That is, you know, Scotland in May and in September is a lovely place to visit. Um, but, you know, you try doing some of this late July running through August, traffic, volume of traffic, getting accommodation, finding seats and restaurants. 
um, will prove a challenge unless you're of course in the hands of a tour guide <laughs> or a tour operator you know who's prepared to book everything well in advance but you know for the younger listeners my, i still take the view you know um get over here hire a car you you, you won't get lost <laughs> no, um but it's you know the yes the roads are very narrow <laughs> We drive on the just, wrong side of the road. Yeah. Well, in, in fact, it, it's in the Highlands, that's irrelevant because it's all single track. So it doesn't really make any difference which side of the road you're on. But, uh, you know, there are lots of lots of very, very, uh, what I would call helpful people. You know, pretty much all the major centers have tourist information centers. Um, and, you know, I, I would also advise people to probably do a bit of research before they get here about the Jacobites. You know, there's a lot online that they can, you know, they can source. There are lots of YouTube videos um, with some wonderful characters, uh, you know, who are telling the story. And the whole Jacobite, I suppose, I don't want to use the word saga because it sort of makes, makes slightly light of it, but the great Jacobite struggle is incredibly well told by uh, various people on YouTube. So if they have, if they immerse themselves in all of these YouTube videos and everything else, um, I, I don't think they're going to be disappointed when they get here. Well, we're very fortunate that you're on the American Scottish Foundation board. You're one of our directors. You have been for many years. And I hope that we can call upon you again as our historian back in Scotland um, to help us delve into this further and also look at um, the anniversaries that are coming up next year um, with George the fourth visiting Edinburgh etc and all these different other opportunities for people to put together their experience of Scotland um, but this is wonderful thank you so much for taking us on this journey Thank you. I'm not, well, it's very kind of you to say so. I was going to say it's not so much a journey, more of a, it, it is, I think it's just the critical part of Scotland's history, specifically in its relationship to the, the union itself. Yeah. And um, so, as I said, there's a lot has been written about it. Much has been filmed. Uh, one of the great advantages is that many of the sites, including, sadly, and the, the fields of battle themselves included, are as they were um, at the time. So at least they're getting, they're getting to see it pretty much through the, I would think, with the same eyes that many of the Jacobites saw the countryside. And their forefathers, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jamie. No you have an enjoyable day. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> and now I am joined by Charles Graham Campbell, the Managing Director of Bonham Scotland. Now, as we learn more about some key items coming up in the upcoming annual Scottish sale. Charles, good morning, and thank you for joining us, as I know this is a very busy time for Bonhams. And coming up shortly is the annual Scottish sale, on October the 14th and 15th. There are some outstanding artworks coming up from 
Sir Henry Rayburn and Sir John Watson to Jacobite era flintlock pistols and crystal mid-century furniture. So can you give us some highlights? I'd be absolutely delighted to. And as you say, it's a sort of an annual outing. We obviously major on the uh, paintings because they're the very important part. But for me, actually, the decorative art side of things throws up some of the most fascinating bits and pieces. So many of our things have a sort of story behind them. Uh, we have all sorts of, of, of different things. We embrace from very, very old things to very, sometimes very modern. Um, and, I, and I just would like to share one or two stories with you and uh, one or two of the objects with you. Um, Thank first, you. First, first thing I'd I think I'm going to pick up just because it's got it's right beside me here is a is a um, is a sporran. Yeah, there we are. What what more Scottish can we get a, than, than that? This is a uh, sporran from the Gordon Highlanders. Not particularly valuable thing, but just a, a, an interesting object. And this was a a military sporran worn by an officer of the Gordon Highlanders uh, from around about 120 years ago. And they still keep the same regimental dress now. Just a plated top to it, nice gilt tassels, horsehair. And, and we have an auction estimate when this comes up for sale in, our, in a month's time of um, about sort of three to 400 pounds. Ready Wonderful. to use, somebody will buy that and use it and take it away. And we, we've sold these sort of things around the world. But, but there we are, also, that's one, one little thing to get us up and running. But Charles, the wonderful thing about this is it's got so much history to it, because as I was reading through it, sort of pointed out that it probably had been um, from the Egyptian and Indian campaigns. That, that's right. They, a lot of military items are always marked with the campaigns of the various regiments. And this one here, as we lean over again, you can see the um, the sphinx on the actual uh, dial. You see the cross of the, the their logo, the sphinx, right. and uh, so it's marked with Egypt and then India for a tiger, and, uh, and uh, it, it just sort of shows where the Scots have been around the world. And you know, back 200, 100 years ago, we were still uh, running around the world doing things, and uh, <clears throat> I, I think the. Um, the Scottish regiment there were in Afghanistan about 120 years ago too. So nothing changes there. Wonderful. One of, I'm going to show you another object now. Yes. One of our prize lots of the decorative arts side of the sale is this pair of pistols. There we are. They're made by a chap called Murdoch. And Murdoch was one of these, um, Thomas Murdoch was one of these uh, makers in the town of Dune, which is very close to Stirling, on up the River Forth from where we are now currently in Edinburgh. And Dune was a historically very important place because it, it was the lowest crossing point of the River Forth. So all the trades going up and down to the highlands, mainly sort of cattle but um, then obviously became travelers too had to pass through this little village of dune and um, some people were, were scared to come south unless they got armed up and some people were scared to go north unless they got armed up so the pistol pistol business grew up um, tremendously in that little village it was started in about sort of 1640 1650 so very early on 
and uh, it progressed and there are a few families involved in making this is by a, a particular pistol by a chap called Murdoch I don't know if you can see the name Murdoch right. written in there and uh, a, a, a lovely all steel flintlock pistol uh, or, or, or pair of pistols uh, as we say and uh, in a very much in a Scottish style and the Scottish style is exemplified by these sort of ram's horn I suppose if we turn it the other way up, you can sort of see the sort of ram's oh, horn yeah. uh, muzzle there. And there are, there are other particular features there. It doesn't have a trigger guard. And uh, one of the stories behind this is so that uh, if anybody sort of comes across any trouble, they don't get the trigger guard stuck on their, their, their sort of tartan plate and they can just pull it out and fire it at, um, at a near-do-well who comes, comes to attack them. So yeah, so it's a certain sort of design features. And actually another important part about the Dune pistol, the Dune pistol is meant to have been the shot that started the American War of Independence. So, you know, there's a lot of history going on and um, a pair of pistols were actually uh, given uh, to George Washington. I, I got a story here about them. Yeah, George Washington had a, had a pair and then he yes he bequeathed them to Major General Lafayette on his death as well so um, it, it, there's a lot of history going going on with these things they're yeah, beautiful absolutely. Aren't they? they're gorgeous and, and as we know pistols are are, are, are very collected in fact we uh, Bonhams sold in our Los Angeles sale room just uh, over a week ago a pistol that um, shot uh, uh, Billy the Kid was it, would it fetch $6 million or something incredible? It was a huge amount of money. The, the, these are actually priced rather modestly, uh, even though they're even older. These, these are, we've got an estimate of 10 to 12,000 uh, pounds on these. So in dollars, it's about 15,000, give or take. But nice, nice little silver marks on them. So they're very, very collectible things. And, and when we and when we in a few minutes we'll talk about how easy it is for people to sign up and um and join an auction so but let's keep going What's yeah okay next? let's keep going what what else do i want to show you oh yes i've got a wonderful bit of jacobite glass here now glasses jacobite cores well the jacobite cores is all about so bonnie prince uh, charlie the restoring the stuarts back to the throne of great britain and uh, there, there was a, lo a lot of sort of just discussions and why were these germans becoming kings of of britain the sort of queen anne and the various georges after that all, all german so there were, there were a lot of sort of thought well we get must get the stuart clan back onto the the throne and um we we, we had the, the old pretender there was a sort of uprising in 1715 and then there was another uprising in 1745 which we all know that terminated in the ba battle at Clum. and then after that there were a lot of Jacobite sympathizers scattered around the country up and down and they used to sort of toast their their, their leader over the water quite often and uh, the Jacobite glasses were one way that you could toast them and the the, the Jacobite uh, symbol with this the, 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 this sort of wonderful rose six petaled so it's slightly more unusual than some of the other roses but then they also had a uh, a bud 
engraved on these glasses. And this this bud sort of shows that the sort of the uprising, the, the, the new the new person overseas that's going to evolve and, uh, and and take over. And then, then, then there's various other motifs, but otherwise it's just a lovely bit of Georgian glass. And um, th th these have now become you know very very sought after things. And, it, and so the uh, traditional etching would be this six petaled rose and the the rosebuds. And, and the rosebuds. Sometimes they had the two buds for the the um, Charles and Henry. You know the two two brothers. And, so, and then they sometimes had the thistle motif. But this has just got the one bud and then the le the leaves on it. There, there are various different motifs that were used, and sometimes there's a, a an inscription as well. Um, but, uh, but you know they're, they're just lovely tactile things, and, and, and people collect, collect these these items. So. And you have quite a few of them coming up. There's quite a bit of Jacobite. Um, there's a few. Yeah, we we always like to save up our anything Jacobite memorabilia for this particular sale. So yes, there's a there's a few bits of uh, Jacobite glass and uh, one or two other things from sort of from that period. There's bits of right. silver again from that period that we we got a bit of. Silver bit, bit, bits that um, would have, you know, done a similar sort of thing at the, at that time. Wonderful. Yeah. So that that's sort of one aspect of, of the sale. Another another aspect of the sale is sort of is is items that have come from grand country houses in Scotland, in and around, from the the sort of the ducal families, if if you like. And there's there's always a great sort of you know, story uh, about that. Um, we had a sort of sale earlier on the year with Dumb Robin stuff, but we've still got one or two items in this sale, uh, a, a little chance to uh, acquire one or two more pieces. I mean, obviously the Sutherland family from the north of Scotland, the Highlands is actually where I was brought up, uh, great associations with North America, because a lot of them were sort of went from that part of the world to Canada and, um, and and the United States and, and and literally all over the world. But anyway, I want to show you one particular lot that has got the the, the Sutherland cipher on it, which oh. is sort of the S mark there. And this this is a sort of tree um, cover a lid for a, a a dish for food. And just look how ornate those those fish are on the top. Oh you can yeah. sort of see right through it, it's all pierced. There's a, a, a wonderful design there with these great, great buildings. This is part of a dinner service. The, 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 the Lord Sutherland, the Duke of Sutherland, would have commissioned this uh, great big service for, you know, to be had for, for Dun Robin to be used. I've got another even bigger one here. This has got oh. a cauli cauliflower on it. So we, I brought two of them for you to see a cauliflower oh. and, a, and, and fish, diff different sort of sizes. but. Um, Tremendous things, really. Uh, the Dun Robin sale in the attic was fabulous, and the chance to catch another item from it now is fantastic. Exactly, it's huge, exactly. It's a huge I, collection of china, isn't it? This this service. It's not like forty pieces. It's it's much bigger, isn't it? Absolutely. There's over over a hundred pieces. I mean, there so, the, some quite just sort of relatively plain sort of flatware, but would look really great on a dresser. And then the, some of these larger pieces as well. So the, the, there's, a, there's a mixture of, 
plates and screens, certainly, in the, in the set. It, it's not a complete service. You'd, you'd never buy it to use it, but it's just a lovely, lovely thing. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of it. And, uh, and a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, another item that we actually got, it is, actually comes from the uh, Campbell family, not, nothing to do with me, Campbell side of it, but uh, the, of Bredulban Campbell, so from Taymouth Castle. And actually, they're just... Oh! Uh, and that, that chair's got the... Um, maybe I can just bring it Yes! Yeah. Wonderful sort of crest and motto, the boar's head on the top there. I don't know if we can quite, quite see that there. There we go. And uh, again, it's just sort of, the, it shows the, the, what the aristocracy would do back then, uh, 100, 150, 200 years ago, uh, that the, they would sort of personalize their stuff. I mean, I suppose a lot of this sort of thing can go on a bit today and you you, you can get something. Back then it was slightly more unusual and it, it sort of, it, it just created lovely collector's items for us today. A beautiful, a beautiful uh, leather tooling around the side and finishing, and uh, just wonderful to, to to. I think they're a set of three, aren't they? Just to That's have right. those for your to put anywhere in the house. A fabulous, a little bit of Scotland <laughs> coming to you from the castle. Exactly, especially if you're from that sort of middle part of Scot Scotland, the, the sort of uh, uh, Loch Tay, the, the, the sort of Aberfeldy, the sort of areas. Great, great sort of story, story attached to it, all the things. But, uh, but, 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 yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a sort of fun, fun things. So um, behind you, you've got all these wonderful paintings. So can you tell us um, quickly a few of the, the highlights of the paintings? I saw sort of Rayburn and Granton, but there's some wonderful pieces behind you too, aren't there? Yes, yes. Well, just just, just over my, my shoulder here, we, we see a, a painting by a very contemporary artist, Jack Vetriano. Uh, who's still very much alive and working away. He was born in 1951, so he's, he's not that old in the grand scheme of things. He grew up in, um, in Fife uh, from a you know, mining, very much a mining area, and there wasn't a lot of money when he was growing up and uh, came from a quite impoverished background, but he's just sort of taken off and become one of the sort of stars of today. And his paintings are now sought after by collectors the world over. And, and it's sort of almost a, a, a reverse sort of psychology. A lot of the uh, established critics, you know, don't like his work, mainly because he was self-taught and he, he painted it in, in certain sort of style that's maybe not quite to everybody's taste. And um, it, the critics have sort of gone against him, but this hasn't stopped his popularity. And his, he's, he literally set the record for a singing butler for a price of a, a Scottish artist, living or dead. You know, it's just, just absolutely incredible. Uh, and his artwork graces sort of tea towels, biscuit tins, as, as well as people's walls. You know, you'll, you'll find uh, uh, children's bedrooms have posters by, by, by him. Um, as, as well as uh, these wonderful paintings. So, so this, this painting here will, will sell. We've got, I think, sort of three or four, four or five paintings in the sale by, by this artist. So it's, um, it's a great opportunity to, 
to see them and things and, and have them. He's so now obviously become very collected. So this is a two-day sale across all genres from the, from the paintings to the decorative accessories. And the catalogue on the website is fabulous. It's really, you know, shows everything that's um, to great degree. So we can go online to bonhams.com and can, buy the yeah. Scottish sale and um, a few days ahead so they can register. But it's not difficult to bid, is it? No, I mean, as I say, you can go to our calendar, go to the 14th of, of, of October for forthcoming auctions, and you can see the Scottish sale. And, and you see, we've got, got over sort of 400 items in that sale, of which about 100, over 100 are paintings, and then the rest are the decorative arts, covering all, all sorts, of, sort of things as we sort of talked about. And there's a couple of collections from Scottish country houses there as well. But the paintings are the main thing, really. They, there are sort of very much of an international flavour and, uh, and, and, and have been collected and are and have come to us from all over the world as well. Um, I'm just sort of thinking the Scottish colourists that are probably the most yeah. sought after of the Scottish art. Those are the works by Peplow, Cannell, Ferguson and Hunter, and a, a couple of the peplos, a couple of the cattles have actually come from Australia for, for us to, to sell. But in the past, we, they, they've come from the from the US and Canada and, and, and other places as well. So it's a... Returned it, home. <laughs> well, well, yes, they return home to be sold, and then yeah. they quite often then disappear off around <laughs> the world again. Exactly. It's the sort of, we, we have the market here, and uh, so things come back here to be sold, and, and then they disappear off again. For example, if, if you bought the Australian painting, you, there is a sort of premium for, 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 for buying it because it's being imported in the country. But if you then export it again, you get that back again. So it's actually <laughs> almost advantageous to be overseas buying some of these things. So it's, <laughs> you almost get a, get a, a more of a, a chance or, or a slightly less pay of, of duty than uh, you would do if you were buying it in the country. But no, we, we have the Scottish diaspora, as you know, is around the world, and the, there are people all over, whether they be uh, made their money in all sorts of aspects. So it also brings a bit of Scotland to your, uh, over to you, to your home. And um, I loved also, I have to say, before we, we finish, the plaster relief casts of Stirling Castle. I thought those were lovely, the Rodels, Rodels, yeah. sorry. Exactly, yeah, they're, 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 they're quite fun, but they're, they are just, I suppose, copies, but that's just the, the great thing, because there, there you are, you can get a, a relief carving of, uh, you know, an early king of Scotland uh, and his good lady and, and all the rest of it, and you could have them, they're, 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 they're Victorian, the copies taken from from the yeah. uh, the story of the Victorian era. We've also got some other similar ones from um, of the Elgin marbles as well oh, in, really? in, in the sale. But um, I, I'm going to get you a little bit of an arms and armor. We're going to go back to the arms and armor again. Oh, good! Really. Oh, lovely! Please show you a, a couple of things here. That this is a a wonderful sort of box here, and it, it, in this box, I'm just sort of going to. Uh, 
open it and uh, inside it we've got a a dirk uh, and a and a ski and do there we are this is a this was a again an officer's set and then on the top of it we've, we've got a it mentions the name of the owner, Colonel Colin Mackenzie of the 79th Highlanders. So again, that was one of the, the, the Inverness sort of based uh, regiments. And uh, there, there you are, there's a, a dirt which would be worn and then the, and, and the ski and do set. So lovely, lovely just to have. And again, with the engraving and crests and, things on it so um so th th there's that and then that that's probably date dates to around about sort of 1880s date give or take and then we've also got a sword rather nice um again jacobite era sword this could have been used in anger um at the at the time of the uh the the, the uprisings and all the rest of it uh whether it was or not we, we don't know it's um it dates to around about sort of 1720s, 1750s sort of period. Uh, and it's got, again, got the traditional marks on it. Not, not a, I mean, just see all of it Amazing. there on the, the screen. Wonderful. wonderful. Wonderful thing. Yes. Well, this is wonderful. And you, and all, you do a call for items. You know, there are days when you actually receive and look at items, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're interested in anything, you can always sort of send us messages and we can tell you more about them. Um, you know, whether they, they be paintings, there's another painting by Farkson there, and then, uh, another one by Anne, Anne Redpath, just over there, and then McLaughlin right. Mill, just beside me there. And then and there there's a, a textile of uh, depicting a, one of the um, wonderful sort of, Iconic stories. So this is a, a, a an old folk tale, if you like. It, uh, it's a folk tale that comes from around about the sort of twelfth or thirteenth century, and it sort of um, M sort of depicts this chap, it's Patrick Spence, who is a very famous sort of sea captain, and uh, he was sent out by his king to go and rescue um, uh, the, the king's daughter Margaret and a small child because the Margaret married the King of Norway. There's lots of sort of symbolism and stories going on. Again, everywhere we turn, there's another another story and things. But yeah, please do look at our, our website and, uh, and, and gather some more information. No, this has been wonderful. There was so much interested in the Dunrobin sale. And when we spoke to you about the colorists earlier this year, so it's wonderful to catch up with you now and hear about the Scottish annual sale. And um, we look forward to speaking with you again soon and hearing what is, uh, what is on offer again from Bonhams in Scotland. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Many fierce battles were fought during the Jacobite period. And Maestro Paul MacDonald, who makes authentic swords and armor and has an academy devoted to swordsmanship, now joins me in conversation Good morning, Paul, and thank you for joining us today. I'm fascinated to know more about what the MacDonald Academy is about, but could we begin by asking us to tell, to tell us um, how you became involved with, um, I hope this is not the wrong word, weaponry. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me on board. It's a pleasure to be, be part of it today. Um, yes, uh, I, well, I'm originally from the, the West Highlands and uh, first came to Edinburgh in 1992. And it was there that I really uh, discovered, I think, my, my passions in life, um, which was delving into uh, the path of the sword and really committing myself to that for life uh, while I was in Edinburgh. Um, and my, my paths were very much parallel, mutual paths of crafting uh, arms and of martial arts and studying the uh, techniques and methods uh, applied with weaponry centuries ago. So did you first of all attend various reenactments or were you um, a member of a fencing school or how did this sort of all develop? Well, um, back in those days, <laughs> there was no historical fencing. There was nothing uh, such as historical European martial arts, which is, is very much flourishing now. Um, so I found sports fencing was the closest thing. Um, and I, I think I imagined that sports fencing, in fact, was more traditional swordsmanship at the time. Uh, so it took me a while to realise it wasn't. And I then looked to try and find in Scotland any group and anyone that was teaching the martial traditions. And I became very, very focused on that. Um, and for months, I tried to find the right groups and I approached every group I could find. Um, the, the SCA, which I believe are, are quite large in, in the States, and any other reenactment group I could find. Um, and they all either were quite, they were quite honest and often they made up you know four or five basic cuts and parries as a very basic system but that was as far as they went um i wasn't finding what i was looking for so in the end i was obliged to start something and i started the first historical fencing group in the uk in 1994. was it very difficult to find the equipment that you wanted as well if there was such a lack of uh groups doing this did that sort of lead you to start trying to shape your own piece exactly it really had to and and, and that's that's a, a great question because it was a great consideration at the time uh, in order to learn authentic and historical techniques accurately you really need an accurate tool to do that so whatever weapon you're studying if it's medieval longsword or basket hilt broadsword or small sword or rapier you really need in your hand an accurate weight and balance weapon to do that, a training weapon, of course. Um, and of course, they just weren't around at the time. There were tourist pieces that looked good on the wall, but they were, you know, excessively heavy in the hand too often. So I then had to start making my own at that time as well. So we've been talking with um, Jamie, the Lord Semple, uh, around the... Um, Jack, the Jacobite period, which was so turbulent, um, so many battles and um, the, the warrior and everyone coming, coming to the fore. Could you speak a little bit to what um, they would go into battle with uh, and be using? Because I see mm -hmm. some wonderful pieces behind you. Yes, yes. Yes, some of these are original Jacobite pieces. There's a, a legendary sword or two, in fact, behind me. I have Rob Roy McGregor's original sword, which we can maybe talk in detail about another time, but, uh, and a sword from the Battle of Preston Pans. But 
Um, of course, the arms being carried in the Jacobite period weren't necessarily anything new or fresh at that time. They were a continuation of traditions for going back. You can go back centuries. And in fact, you can really go back thousands of years when you look into the golden threads of the martial traditions that follow through in the Highlands. Um, but the, the weapons that had developed by that time, primarily the, the frontline arm was the, the basket-hilted broadsword. Um, but of course, the, the Highlanders weren't entirely backwards in technological terms and also had muskets and pistols um, for a bit longer range engagement. But when it came to hand-to-hand -hand engagement, that's where the Highlanders always excelled um, in swordsmanship, in use of the, the dirk, the knife, and in wrestling in close combat as well. So um, you are forging um, wonderful uh, replicas, um, which I noted from your um, from what I was reading earlier, sort of are the right weight and standard. They really are authentic replicas. How heavy was the the average sword that was being carried? They they look so lot. You know, we see them um, <laughs> pictures and depicted. They look quite heavy. Yes, yeah, and and, and that's a, that's a common perception that's, I think, taken from the fact that everybody looks at a sword and they look at it this way. They see the blade this way and it looks like a wide piece of steel that must be in their head heavy. Um, but the real magic of a blade is when you look on a, on a blade this way and you look at it edge on. And uh, I'll just grab a, <laughs> grab a piece here uh, to show you. And so here's the width of the blade and the taper of the width of the blade, usually they get slightly more slender towards the point, and that's what you would call a profile taper. But the real magic in a blade is called distal taper. So we'll look at it on the spine, and it's five or six millimeters thick here, but gets progressively thinner and thinner and thinner towards the point, and it's less than a millimeter thick here. That is the magic of a good sword blade that you can only see when you look at a sword from a very different perspective than that. So are they around, are we talking pounds and ounces still over here? Yes, absolutely. I use it myself too, yeah. How many pounds is that? Uh, your window of workable weight, of effective functional weight for a single-handed sword hasn't changed throughout history because as people we've not evolved greatly you know we still have the same number of limbs i think as we did in the neolithic period uh, so uh, what works in the hand uh, is still effective and that's anywhere between two pounds and three pounds that's your effective window and most single-handed swords in this period in the 17th and 18th century you'll find to be about two and a quarter to two and a half pounds in the hand and that's well balanced weight of course that's not all heavy forward weight it's balanced back with the hilt and with the pommel as well so that blade can really dance about in the hand wonderful so you also run an academy now don't you and that's and um that's really um of um martial arts and fencing yes that's correct i run the, the mcdonald academy of arms and that's my own academy based in the traditions of martial technique and method with the basket hilt broadswords, just as you see here, that's our principal weapon. And um, I've established my own method 
of use with that sword based entirely on the original weapons and how that weapon works uh, and moves in terms of weight and balance and then back engineering that into fingers and the hand and the wrist and the arm and the body and the footwork so it's all been back engineered from the sword itself now if um we're planning to visit once again scotland where would we be able to see reenactments or um wonderful swordmanship taking place is there any any special time of year when though you come together well, to be honest, you've just missed about the only Jacobite reenactment you'll see in Scotland every year, which was Preston Pans. The Battle of Preston Pans um, has a, 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 a small scale reenactment, but quite a good quality one. Um, and that's run by the Preston Pans uh, Battlefield uh, Trust. Uh, that's an excellent event. I had a stand of arms there just on Saturday and uh, enjoyed the battle while I was there too. But really, that's that's the only... I think regularly reenacted uh, Jacobite event, at least you can see in Scotland. Though I believe that there's a Viking event in Largs as well. So we need to come back and see you and go through more of the collection and understand more of what you're doing. But this has been a wonderful introduction to all that you're doing. Um, and I'm so glad you were able to take a few minutes to join us today. You're very, very welcome. And thanks very much for having me on board again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today as we delve back in time with our guests today. To stay up to date with our programs and events, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and hit the subscribe on YouTube. As president of the American Scottish Foundation, I add our thanks to all of you, our listeners, friends, members, and patrons, helping us to share our love of Scotland. Thank you for your support. Our podcasts are released the first and third Monday of the month, and our Sounds from Scotland music link-up, hosted by Jamie McGeechan, is released live on the third Sunday of the month. Till next time. Mm -hmm.